Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hello, listeners. This is Chris Connolly with the HarperCollins Library Marketing Team. I am thrilled today to be joined by Kathy Wang, whose debut novel, Family Trust, was published by HarperCollins, and now we are thrilled to be talking about her upcoming novel, uh, Imposter Syndrome, which is going on sale in June. So, uh, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I'm just going to give listeners a quick background on you. Again, your debut novel was Family Trust, critically acclaimed, a huge publication for us. Uh, you grew up in Northern California, and you're a graduate of UC Berkeley and Harvard Business School, and you live in the Bay Area with your husband and two children. Uh, and you also have a lot of experience in the tech industry, which I know informs uh, both novels that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but just to begin, could you give listeners an overview of imposter syndrome? Yeah, definitely. So um, imposter syndrome essentially asks the question, what if one of the world's most powerful female technology executives was in fact a Russian spy? And what happens when that spy, whose name is Julia Lerner, when the uh, kind of quite frankly amazing life she's built for herself in the United States comes into danger um, as someone else begins to look into her activity? So the novel really follows the journey of the three of three different um, protagonists. There's Julia, who's the spy. There's Alice Liu, who is a Chinese American immigrant who also works at Julia's company, but who's very low level and just happens to notice some unusual activity going on. And then there's Leo, who is Julia's handler. So we follow them through this as they confront the various risks and they start to go further and further and deeper into this. I guess more ass they find that they find themselves in. And your debut novel, Family Trust, also dealt with the tech industry, but perhaps more peripherally, imposter syndrome is like this fantastic pulse-pounding spy thriller, but it also feels like a deeper dive into the intricacies and pitfalls of the tech industry. So could you talk a little bit about that and how your own experience informs the book? So I think because I've I've worked in that in the industry basically for my whole life and I still work in it now. It's really just what I feel like I know best. Like I can write that very naturally. You know, when I read other fiction, I feel like I always enjoy the ones where you you know that the author works in, in that industry. Um, so for me, tech is not necessarily like something to be totally satired. It's more, it's more just the everyday background of their lives. And so the big questions that it examines around privacy or social media, I think that they're, it's not like a theme with a capital T, it's more just what these characters happen to be doing, and certainly it informs their decisions and their problems, but it's more just a natural background of how they live. 
Yeah, I think I think that's really well put. And yeah, I, I don't think satire as much as I, I think it's just an honest look at the tech industry and how its power plays into you know our daily lives and kind of world events. Could you talk about you know, does, does your experience in the industry imbue, imbue you with more hope or suspicion of the industry's role in these things? I think that's such a, that's such a deep question in a way, because, you know, I think the last four years has been very eye-opening in terms of how we may want to view the power of big tech and who controls it, right? So I think perhaps prior to 2016, I might have had the perspective, well, that the government should be more involved and they should have more power. They should have the power to pull the plug. From 2016 to 2020, I was almost so thankful that there was this other power out there that could potentially serve as a check and balance. Um, but you know, I think the argument can be made that that probably may not have been checked as much. Or, and so it's a very complicated question. Um, I've thought about it a lot. I think that I'm hopeful, but to be hopeful for the future of our country in, in terms of and how it relates to tech, I think the most important is actually a free press. And so without the pressure from journalists keeping both the government and, and tech accountable, I think it's a disaster. So I think with a free press with people paying to read articles on, you know, the New York Times or the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal, um, then you have the chance for some kind of balance there. But without that, I would be, I would be much more pessimistic, I think. So in speaking of 2016 to 2020, you were writing this novel in the midst of all of this. And people often talk about the challenges of a, the second novel, the big second novel. So what was your, the writing process like for you and did your approach change at all? Yeah, so, you know, my first novel I wrote, it was almost like a New Year's resolution for me. And um, it was, you know, you don't think it's gonna be published, right? So you just kind of put whatever you feel like in it. I think for your second, you definitely have that pressure. Um, I am definitely a button chair hours kind of writer, which means that I have to get a certain word count out per day, no matter what. So I had written basically almost two entire manuscripts for my editor, Kate, who's, who is the same editor as for Family Trust. And just at the last hour, I just thought that they like were not cutting it. And so I was almost done with my second. And then I was driving one day and I just got this idea in my head like what if there was this female executive who was a Russian spy and I just was like I couldn't let it go so I hadn't been this obsessed with an idea before so I just was like okay I've got to put aside my current manuscript and start on this one and, and basically it was all I worked on after that so that was the process for the second the perseverance involved with <laughs> approaching a new idea and a new story after two additional manuscripts is astounding so to our benefit though so thank you for doing it <laughs> upon yourself you feel so frustrated right because you're like well i have these two other ones but you don't want anyone to read them I'm like they're terrible <laughs> oh my well maybe someday we'll see i do want to talk about the three central characters view slash viewpoints of the story so as you mentioned julia who's the coo of tangerine mm -hmm. alice the level low-level employee who stumbles upon clues that point towards julia's involvement in something potentially nefarious and then leo julia's handler who or what inspired these characters and what was your thought process making the decisions you did 
when crafting them. So Julia is definitely the character that appeared most fully formed in my head. So, you know, for me, it's almost you think about, okay, what would a Russian spy think if she managed to get ascend to this level um, at a company like Tangerine, which is essentially a Google Facebook hybrid. And I feel like that character almost, you can, can make conjectures yourself and it almost writes itself. Um, and then I basically wanted to pair her with another employee at her company who was in very different circumstances to her financially and socially, and uh, but who possessed the knowledge that she was a spy and kind of play off how that worked. Um, with Julia, because she's actually an immigrant, like you don't necessarily think of that when you think of a spy, but it is true, like she's an immigrant from Russia. I wanted to pair her with another immigrant. So that's why I made Alice an immigrant from China, just to kind of compare those experiences. And then I wanted a handler because there has to be a handler. And I wanted the handler to be another source of almost exasperation for Julia. So that's essentially how I wanted to form the three characters. And I wanted the handler, Leo, to also kind of occupy maybe a little bit of a parental role and then see how that would play out. Yeah, and all three are so wonderfully formed and complex and especially Leo, which I found myself unexpectedly connected to in some strange way. And we'll talk about the characters a little bit more, but I want to return to another big ideas question, yes. quote unquote. And that's about the American dream, because I think it's a concept that especially the last four years or so can feel almost antiquated or out of touch in our current climate. And while it's never like explicitly stated in this book for these characters, and like you mentioned, they're all immigrants, that dream feels very present and real for better or worse. And I was wondering if you could talk about, you know, your approach to that idea. And also, especially I think in the tech industry, which in the book and in previous interviews you've mentioned, you know, the tech industry is filled with lifelong overachievers essentially. And there's only so many spots to move upwards. So I could see that dream being warped and challenged. So yes, the American dream, what's your approach? What's your, what are your thoughts on that and its place in this book? So for this book, I mean, I, for some reason, I don't know, I, I've been very obsessed with national security stuff for a long time. And that's also why I decided to make her a spy. But, you know, the more that you read about spies who come here, like real spies and, and how they get caught, or, or what happens with them, the more that I really do deeply believe that one of our most powerful weapons to ensure our national security is the fact that life here is, is or is supposed to be really good for immigrants, right? So that they can come here and uh, you know they'll find a society accepting and there'll be opportunities for them to grow. And you know whether or not that remains, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that that will return um, after the events of the last four years. But, you know, you think about even like a Russian spy, any Russian spy, like maybe not the one in my novel. I mean, they're coming from a country where like, if you disagree with the government or you publish an article, you might literally be found pushed out of a window, right? I mean, that's, and you think about these people who are, who are placed in the US and the freedom that they find themselves in and, and how that changes how you, how you feel about uh, both your home country and your loyalties in your new country. I think you know, America is, is, was unique in that. And so I really wanted to explore that side of it in this book and, and, and with these two characters who were born somewhere else, but 
but who are now in America and how they feel about the country. Um, and, you know, I, I wanted it to have a sense of almost hope about it and an, an idealized version, I guess. In terms of the tech industry and the American dream and the overachievers you find that find themselves here, I guess, I think tech is very, it's, it's very different and it's not very different in that you do have these very academic people or these scientists and they may believe that they are doing something to help mankind, right? So when you go into Wall Street, you don't see the bankers at Goldman Sachs huddled around being like, how are we going to change the world? But I think that they are the same too, where you were deep down. I mean, a lot of the motivations are the same. I mean, it's money and status and power. It's just a lot of times I think Silicon Valley wraps itself in this veneer of, of trying to save the world. So that's essentially, I think, something that I'm just, I'm always constantly thinking about in my book. You know, you don't, you don't want to point your finger and be like, oh, everyone's a hypocrite. But you also want to explore both, both sides of the pressures, I guess, that are facing uh, the people that work here. But also, it, it really felt like you shed light delicately and but really poignantly with the generational gaps for immigrants, their children, and how they view things. I mean, I think of Alice's mother and the experience, the, you know, the horrific experience, I don't want to give away too much, mm-hmm. that she went through. And then Alice kind of observing that and her thoughts on like things her mother would say about neighborhoods and and where you want to be and where you want to move and that feels so fraught but also it's just a complex situation could you talk a little bit more about Alice's observations of her mother and that there's not a ton of pages with them but I feel like there's they're, they're very powerful and they say a lot so, yeah, so Alice is, uh, you know, she's, she is the um, low-level employee at a tangerine and her and her family moved here from China when she was younger. And, you know, her mother, which is what you allude to, she has kind of like a racial, racist incident happened to her in the book, um, which kind of then fuels Alice. And it's this thing that just won't leave Alice's head. And I think it's interesting because it, I tried to make it accurate in that I think that people of my own mom's generation, you know, from the Asian American community, when you have this horrifically racist thing happen to you, I think a lot of the times their reaction is like, look at all that this country has given me and all this opportunity. Yeah, this thing happened to me, but I'm not going to let it. I'm just going to brush it off and move on. You know, and I think you see that even right now with what's going on in the Asian American community. And when they examine the increased racial crimes, you see the statements from some of the victims and a lot of them don't want to press charges. They're just like, let's just move on. And I don't have really a deep opinion as to whether that's wrong or right. It's more just how they view the world, right? They still view America as having given them so much. So, you know, they're, they essentially almost view this as, okay, I'm going to take a little bit of the bad with what they, what they perceive as a lot of good. Yeah, excellent. And you're right. It isn't like a simple topic to just make a brand, you know, a grand statement on, but it is something I think really uh, is eye-opening and um, it just, it forces you to think about it in a, in a very direct way, I think with, with the pages that you put in, that you have here. So Thank you for that. That's fantastic. I do want to talk a little bit more about the spycraft elements of the book, which were fascinating. And I mentioned they're so visceral and real pulse pounding. And so Russia, as we know, has been in the headlines for a while now. 
I'm curious what it was like approaching a US Russia relationship in a novel and what kind of research you did. And just as a side note, I love the way that you fleshed out Leo's character. I mentioned that. So just a, a third question and we can circle back because I know there's like three questions I've asked you now. <laughs> what was it like writing humanity and growth into, the, into people who do bad things? Well, so um, I will talk about Russia first. So yes. actually in the beginning, I did not want to have a country named because you know, I don't want, I don't actually perceive like any country as bad. It's not like a US anti, you know, versus Russia story to me. So I try to make it an unnamed Eastern European country. And my editor was like, you know, I think you're going to have to name it. And there's really only so many that you can name. You know, I didn't, it's, it's not realistic, I think, to, to, there's not many realistic ones you can, you can opt for. And um, actually, in the beginning, it could have, it could have been, you know, I was looking at all kinds of countries, but then I also wanted Julia to be white, to be able to kind of melt into society in that way. And again, so I was left with Russia. You know, luckily, my husband grew up in Eastern Europe and he speaks fluent Russian. So he uh, that was very helpful. And I had um, spent time with him there because he he also worked there. So um, all the local scenes in the book are from what I remember of it. The spycraft stuff. I mean, there's so many books about Russia and spies. So if that's enormously helpful, um, at the same time, I tried not to go too much too too deep into it because there's always going to you know then you'll be like well I didn't get that right or there's something you know and the you didn't, the gun is wrong or something so I wanted it to be believable but uh you know not go I, I you know I, I myself am not you know there's there's lots of books from former CIA and FBI agents and so I think they I cannot compete there and they have a very um, specific view so so that's essentially how I how I um, approached it with Leo, who is the handler, I mean, again, I don't think necessarily he's someone doing a bad thing. I mean, I think from his perspective and from his country's perspective, he's doing a very good job. Like he has uh, an asset who is the CEO of essentially a Google. I think he's he's succeeded enormously um, well. So I wanted to approach it from the perspective that Leo is is a decent character. He's a decent guy. He just happens to be someone on the other side of us who live here in the United States. And um, I think when you approach them that way, when you don't have to make them so two-dimensional, just so much more about a character um, opens up to you. Excellent. And it is such a, I mean, so the plot is, you know, fast-paced and propulsive, but it is such a character-driven novel at the same time. It does both things so well. And really, I think with a, with a plot-based novel, unless you have characters that are fascinating and, and really kind of creep into your imagination, there's there's a lack of depth and there is no lack of depth with this novel these characters all are unforgettable and absolutely loved it so I do want to talk a little bit more about the just the tech industry um and because I think you write again about like the intricacies and pitfalls of tech upper management which that power play which is so well written it seems really perilous and shocking for an outsider looking in but being a woman and especially a mother adds this layer of complexity that I just can't imagine navigating. So could you talk about writing these power plays about motherhood and tech and diversity and how your own experience informs all these elements? Definitely. I mean, I think, I think I had said this to someone else earlier. I mean, I think my own personal experience in the tech industry is, is really just, you have your, your, 
average mix of total jerks and good people. I don't think it was abnormally skewed in either direction. So you're like, okay, that's, that's how it is. Um, I do think tech is very, very specific in that it is filled with these people who have been told that they are geniuses. And then when they have a worldview about, let's say, uh, diversity or something, they, they then believe whatever they think is correct because they will just pick and choose facts to support their worldview, um, which is how you get some of these personalities that come out of it. In terms of the, diff- the specific difficulties about being like a female executive and also balancing that with marriage or motherhood, I mean, there's so many interesting examples that you can pull from in the past that actually happened. So I thought about for example, Julia, I thought about um, Marissa Mayer when she took two weeks for her maternity leave and people were like, you're a monster. They're like, oh, go woman. And I, I, for me, it's interesting. I didn't really care so much about that debate. What I cared a lot about was what Marissa Mayer herself was actually secretly thinking, you know, and, and um, or, you know, or even taking it out of the tech space. Like when people were saying these things about Hillary Clinton, it interested me to imagine what Hillary Clinton was actually secretly thinking about it. And so in a way, my book is almost wishful thinking in that I really do hope that for some of these female executives out there are female politicians, they are as ruthless as Julia, because I would, I would want them to be. I hope they're not reading these nasty comments online and crying to themselves every night, right? I hope that they're, they're going home and understanding that this is unfortunately the environment that they live in and, and figuring out how to operate and get their own. So, so that's always been the aspect that fascinates me most, you know, the things that these powerful women tell themselves and, and the, the secret things that they go home and say to their spouses as they really plot out the next day. And then the contrast to how, what they may see in public. I, I really do truly hope that they are, you know, as tough as someone like Julia and kind of, and, and again, as ruthless because, you know, they need to be, right? I want them to be just as ruthless as any, any man would be. Excellent. Yeah. And again, Julia is an unforgettable character. And, and I think you do write that internal monologue so well as she's observing, you know, she has her round tables, for example, and she's, you know, taking in all the admirers and what they're saying to her based on what she said in interviews and having to navigate, you know, all the different viewpoints that you have. It was so, so good. So that's all my questions today, Kathy. I want to thank you so, so much for joining me. I think this is going to be a great introduction to readers for imposter syndrome. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, excellent. Well, again, thank you, Kathy, for listeners. Imposter syndrome goes on sale June 15th from Custom House and in print of HarperCollins Publishers. The eGalley is available now on Edelweiss and NetGalley. So run, don't walk, download and read and love. Uh, again, thank you so much, Kathy. Have a great day, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.